Now, if you are a regular member, a tender of our church, you, you probably noticed that uh, some, some seats are missing this morning. Uh, we did that intentionally. Nobody came in and robbed the church of a few chairs. Uh, the reason why we did that in second service, we, it's not uh, as, as much of a, of a deal, but uh, in, in first service, it, it's pretty tight. And so we did this and people had to squeeze tighter and closer together. They couldn't have as many seats in between families or singles. And so we did that intentionally to encourage more fellowship and so that we would have some bigger aisles here so that people can talk because a lot of times after the service, people are moving around and it's hard to, to talk, to pray with somebody. And we want to be a church where before the service starts and after the service ends, people are praying together. Uh, that, that if there's a new person and you don't know that person, that you have the space to kind of move around and get to them and, and introduce yourself to them. Uh, and the other thing that we're, we're hoping to do, at least I have another agenda here, is that there are some seats right here uh, that only a few people faithfully sit in. Uh, I want to remind you, if you're going to like a, a Packers game or a Bucks playoff game or a Brewers game, these would be the most expensive seats right here. And you don't have to pay anything to sit in these seats. I will encourage you, first come, first serve, sit in the front, especially if uh, you're comfortable, you're, you're, you're a member of this church. It's a way that we can make it easier for somebody who's newer or somebody comes in late to sit and sit in, uh, on the aisles or in the back. So uh, I would love for this to happen in the back and it, it to be full here so that um, I, I, prom- I do sometimes, you know, I get a little animated, you know, things can fly out a little bit, but, but I, I think the Dutzmans would, would agree, yeah, yeah, it doesn't go that far. So you're good here, all right? There's no splash zone or anything like that. Uh, so please, uh, if, if you're one of those that can sit closer to the front and in the middle somewhere, do that, and that'll just be one little thing that we can do to, to be a more welcoming, hospitable church. Now at this time, I encourage you to open your Bible and turn to 1 John chapter 4. Uh, today's sermon is going to cover the first six verses in chapter 4. If you're using the Pew Bible below the seats, you'll find 1 John 4, 1 through 6 on page 1023. I love that. I say something and people are doing it already. It's beautiful, wonderful. Yeah, right now, if you're one of those, you want to sit up here, go for it. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, we'll leave that for somebody else. Uh, I want to remind you, and if this is your first Sunday or you haven't been here for a while, 1 John is a letter written by the Apostle John in large part to address the matter of Christian assurance. The Apostle John wants true believers, true Christians to know that they are forgiven of their sins, that they've been born of God. That's one of the phrases John uses throughout the letter, that they are justified before a holy God because of what Christ has done because their faith is in Jesus. And so his aim is to increase certainty among believers that the gospel is true and that they are in Christ. And while aiming at increasing Christian assurance, at the same time, 1 John provides those who are false Christians or non-Christians with an opportunity to see the reality of their spiritual condition. We know this from Scripture, that just because somebody goes to church, somebody was raised in the church, somebody's been baptized, uh, somebody gives money to the church, that doesn't mean that they're truly regenerated, converted. That's a work of God. Uh, We also know that many non-Christians go to church, though that's becoming less and less the norm in our country, uh, and that's not always negative. Uh, We want them to hear the gospel, but but it's less confusing. Who's in, who's out, who's who's a member of the, the church? Well, this book provides people or false Christians and non-Christians with an opportunity to see the reality of their, their spiritual condition, their relationship with God, that they're still in the darkness of their sin, unrighteous before a righteous God, dead, spiritually speaking. And, and over and over again, John says, the only answer is Jesus. 
Turn to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Only he can save you. And so whichever category you're in this morning, whether you're a Christian or a false Christian or a non-Christian, God has much to say to you in this passage, in this book. And with that, those of you who are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word? 1 John 4, 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is God's word for his people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. You may be seated. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Great, mighty, awesome Lord, who we have come to worship, we praise you for this passage and how you have and you will use it to guide and strengthen your church. This morning, we have come together not to check off a task on our religious duties. Though you have commanded your people to gather together and worship you, we have come with glad hearts as your people to celebrate the wonders and the greatness and the beauty of the gospel. And so I pray, Father, that, that for those believers who are just kind of dragging their spiritual feet this morning, that your word, the reading of your word, would refresh hearts and a great passion for the truth, a great excitement about hearing the gospel and, and applying your word to our lives would, would come by your spirit. Lord, we... We continually are reminded as we read your word that, that we still struggle with sin, that our lives don't always line up with your word, that our actions, our thoughts, what we do is, is at times sinful. And that grieves us because we know what it took to pay for our sin. And yet we are over and over again preaching the gospel to ourselves. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves that, that though we can be such great sinners, we have a great Savior. And this morning we confess our sins and we confess that Christ alone is our Savior and he's more than capable of saving us for he has done the work and our hope is only in him. Lord, I pray for those weak in faith this morning, struggling with assurance, wrestling through deep and important truths about you and about your word that you would give peace and strength. I pray, Father, for those who are struggling with physical issues health problems, cancer, sickness, medical decisions. Lord, give them wisdom and strength. Remind them of your love this morning and throughout their days. Use us as a local church that believes and holds to this glorious truth that Christ is our greatest treasure, that we would put before our brothers and sisters who are suffering over and over again the glories of Christ, the greatness of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, 
the blessing of being God's people, even in the midst of our suffering. And I do pray that you would continue to use those who are suffering in some very difficult and and hard ways uh, to shine brightly in, in the darkest of places where there is no hope that they would be hope even as they suffer in body, that their souls would be strengthened by your word. Father, we pray for families and especially for, for husbands and wives, moms and dads, that, that we would be humble, that we would be quick to forgive, that we would extend grace to one another. And in so doing so, we would have healthier marriages and families. We also pray, Father, for the singles in our church, that they would remain steadfast, not compromised, that they would, they would, not, they would not pursue relationships uh, when it comes to, to possible marriages with, with non-Christians, that they would know that you are good, uh, that you have what's best in mind and your plan is better than their plan, and that they would not compromise, that they would wait and, and trust that you provide a godly spouse. Lord, we pray again for the young people in our church, that they would have a greater faith than, than the generation before them, that we would pass on what they have and you would give them even more, that the church would be stronger because of, of what you're doing in, in the next generation, and uh, that, that those who are young would, would follow you in the different places and stations that you have them. Now, Lord, we pray that this passage would be used, that, that it would be understood, that, that you would increase our joy and our health as a church through it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, uh, for our, our Good Friday and our Resurrection Sunday or Easter services, uh, we, we turned to 1 Corinthians 15. And, and in that chapter, we, we saw how the Apostle Paul makes it clear over and over again that without Christ's death and without his bodily resurrection, there is no gospel. That was one of the, the, the points in each of those sermons on, on Good Friday and on Resurrection Sunday on Easter morning. Without the death of Christ and without the resurrection, bodily resurrection of Christ, there is no gospel. There's no good news for sinners. And in this morning's passage, the Apostle John reminds us of an equally important and essential truth about the person and the work of Jesus Christ, that he has come in the flesh, that at the incarnation, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, while remaining truly God, never giving up his divinity, became truly a a man. He added to his personhood a humanity and a human nature. Just as there would be no gospel without Christ's death and his resurrection, there would be no gospel, no good news for sinners if Jesus had not come in the flesh. Uh, a few weeks ago in our community group, we were talking about, you know, if you had to pick one, which would be the most important event? The death of Christ or the resurrection of Christ? Or maybe even the birth of Christ? And, it, and it's, you know, a trick question. It's one of those, like, would you rather kind of thing. They're all essential <laughs> If you take away one event, they, they all affect the others. They're, they're a package deal. And, and that is why the church has traditionally marked these events. So not all Christians have done this with Christmas, the incarnation, the birth of Christ, the, the, the coming of, of the God-man, and then Good Friday, the death of Christ, and, and Easter morning, the resurrection of Christ. Our passage this morning, as we consider the importance of Christ's humanity, begins with a warning to the church. Uh, last night I was talking a little bit about the sermon and getting my heart ready and kind of working through those typical pastoral struggles that happen on Saturday night. One, it's too long. That's a continual struggle for me. It's too long. I want to say too much. I had all these dreams with the, the, the week off and in between preaching with, with our pastoral resident preaching last Sunday. I was like, there's, there's some wonderful things to cover. I, like a quarter of what I thought I would cover, I'm, I'm covering. So just wrestling through that. And then uh, the, the reality of this is another warning. 
And there's been lots of warnings in this book already, and, and the Bible's full of warnings. And so just kind of, here I am warning again. And it's good because it's the Bible. We're just working through the, the, this book, 1 John, this, this letter. And so, I, you know, I, I know it's the right thing to do, but just, oh, here I am warning and warning again. You know, I'm like, this is constantly warning, just working through. It's good. But it can be hard sometimes. And I, I want you to see how John starts this warning. Beloved. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Do you notice the word that precedes the warning? It's, it's the word beloved. That's an important word. It's a big word. I was also talking with Amy as I was working through just my own pastoral issues and preparing to preach this morning, how we say the word love a lot in our family. Like, and, and I've mentioned this. It's, I love it. I love the word love. And, and as a family, we're always saying, like, I, I'm guessing 20 times a day where there's love. Like, I love you. I love you. I love you. And, and I know there will come a place where, where my kids, maybe they're already there. They're just like, yeah, okay. And my actions back up, I believe, my love. So the words and the actions match. But we're constantly saying, I love you. I love you. Every time we, we, we leave, you know, even if we're going to see each other in two hours, <coughs> we say, I love you. And so sometimes does, does that lose its meaning? And, and then here's the struggle. How do I capture these deep affections that I have for somebody? And I've used that word in, in, in the church, and I've probably said I love you to many of you, I, I think, in the church over time as we go through struggles and sufferings. How do you capture all this emotion and these feelings that you have for somebody who you love in a better way than love? I love you. And, and so here we see John using that word, beloved, those who are loved. I need to give you this warning. I believe we get a sense of, of the affection that, that this word can communicate in Matthew 3.17 where we read that after Jesus was baptized and came up from the water, God the Father said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The same word that God the Father used to describe his affection for God the Son is the very same word that the Apostle John uses to describe his affection for the church. You see, it is love that motivates John to warn the church about the dangers of false teachers. And the same is to be true of us, church. If we hear that a brother or a sister in Christ is being influenced by false teaching that distorts the gospel, then out of love, we are to follow John's example and warn them. That, that's what's to fuel our warning. If you saw a child running into the road and a car speeding down that road, towards that child, would it be loving to not say a word? To just sit there and say, I hope this ends up all right. You can see it coming. And, and if, you're, if you're aware of children, whether you're a parent or not, you, you, you just kind of watch, okay, and I do this now, like, and, and I, have some, I have four crazy little boys, and so I, they've trained me to do this. Like, a kid's running, and there's a corner, I just stick my hand right there, because I don't want them to split their head open. Uh, you know, you, you have this kind of just, this, this sense of like, okay, car coming, kid running, it could happen. And would it be loving to just keep your mouth shut in that situation and not say a word? Oh, no. It wouldn't be loving. What would be loving? Stop. Stop. You're going to get hit. You're, you're going to get hurt. Stop. Even running towards that child. You don't even know that child. Just running after that child. No, stop. Stop. That would be the loving thing to do in such a situation. If you knew someone was being encouraged to invest in a pyramid scheme, would it be loving to keep your mouth shut? 
Yeah, I know he's, he or she's going to lose their money, all their savings, their retirement is, is going to go into that pyramid scheme. And, and maybe this one is going to work. I'm pretty sure it's a pyramid scheme. I had a friend in high school who got involved in a pyramid scheme. He was always trying to make some money. He wanted to retire by 25 or whatever. And, um, and I didn't know enough uh, about pyramid scheme to really be confident. But as he was talking, and, and I went to Whitewater for business, and then I took economics, and I switched, uh, I switched majors quickly, uh, I think, in the middle of that class. And so what do I know? But it was like, uh, you're going to lose that money. And so I opened my mouth and I said, this doesn't sound right. I, I don't think you should do that. And he invested, and he lost his money. And that, that wouldn't be loving for you not to say something. If you heard that a man who had a long history, and you, you knew for certain this was his history, of using women for his own sinful purposes, and, and this man was pursuing a woman in your church, or one of your friends, or a family member, would it be loving not to warn her? To kind of think, you know what, I believe the gospel. I believe that hearts can change. He changed my heart. Maybe he's changed that man's heart. He's, he's done this to six or seven women already. And so maybe this is different. I'll just kind of keep my mouth shut and pray for his conversion. No, that wouldn't be the loving thing to do. The, the loving thing to do would be to go to her and say, I'm concerned. This man has a reputation, a history of using women, of leading them away from Christ and sinning with them. It would be loving to confront that man and say, I know your history. I believe the gospel, so, so prove it. Prove it that you're a new man in Christ. Prove it. You do not hang out with that woman alone. You, you do not do these shady things. You know I mean? That would be the loving type of thing to do, not to keep your mouth shut. And I think most of you would agree with that. All these scenarios, yeah, open your mouth. Speak, talk, say something. Well, church, we are to be just as much concerned, and I think maybe even more, with people's spiritual safety as we are with their physical, financial, or their emotional well-being. John commands us not to believe every spiritual thing we hear. Many false prophets have gone into the world. They're here. They're in the world. And, and sometimes we think, nope, not, not anymore. It's almost like they just kind of, they're, they're gone. We're just kind of happy-go-lucky. Everything Christian is good if it's called Christian. If they play it on the Christian radio, it's a good theologically sound song. If it's in a Christian bookstore, if it's being sold by a, a ministry, then, hey, this is good. No. And I, I want to I help wake you up. Ultimately, I want the Holy Spirit to wake up. That's, that's not how it is. And church, we must remember what and who is behind these false teachers, this false teaching. We're not dealing with speeding cars, a shady salesman, or a sinful man. John tells us in verse 3 that, that we're dealing with the spirit of the Antichrist. I'm not a doom and gloom guy. Even my end times theology says it, it's getting better as it's getting worse. So it's not just the world's going to hell. You know, the world's, some people in the world are going to heaven. And, and yes, those who reject the gospel are going to hell. So there's good and bad happening at the same time. So please don't hear spirit of the Antichrist and say, here he's going into some crazy end time stuff. No, this is the reality. The one behind their lies and the source of their deception, whether they know it or not, is the devil. Those who preach another Christ, who distort the gospel, are under the direction of Satan. He is the source behind their message. Earlier in chapter 2, verses 22 through 26, John gives this description of those who teach a different Christ. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? They're liars. This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. 
Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. They're they're trying to deceive God's people. Again, some of them might not know it. I don't think they walk around and say, hey, I'm a false teacher. I've never heard of a false teacher that does that. It kind of ends the whole thing of, okay, I'm not going to listen to that guy or that lady. But that's what's really going on. They're deceivers. False teachers are, are not people who ultimately mean well, but are just a little theologically confused. That's just error. That needs to be addressed. And if they're not a false teacher, as, they, as, as their bad theology gets addressed, it's going to change. False teachers are knowingly, and sometimes unknowingly, liars who are seeking to deceive the Lord's sheep and draw them away from the, the, the good shepherd. And this is why when, when warning the elders in the Ephesian church about false teachers, the Apostle Paul calls them wolves. That's strong language to, to, call, to call somebody a wolf. And that's what the Apostle Paul does. Acts 20, 28-31, these are the, the, the parting words, the, the last thing that, that Paul leaves the, the elders in the Ephesian church. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Just picture for three years, Paul is over and over again warning, admonishing, sometimes with tears. You got to hold to the gospel. You got to believe the truth. Over and over again, he, he, didn't, he didn't just warn them once, he admonished these elders. He said that, that within you, you the, the very teachers of, of the church, that there will be some that, that abandon the gospel, that really never believed it and taught it, and, and they're going to lead God's people astray. So be on guard, be alert. And now some Christians are, are quick, in light of this, to call every teacher or preacher or theologian that they disagree with on a certain doctrine a false teacher or a heretic. They don't recognize that within historic Orthodox and biblical Christianity, there are differing views concerning what Scripture teaches about very important matters like baptism or the Lord's Supper, the order of salvation, and and corporate worship. Now, to be certain, all of these doctrines matter. There's there's a movement, and it's been going on for a long time, kind of this ecumenical mere Christianity. And and I I respect and I appreciate, and I've read C.S. Lewis. We love The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Chronicles of Narnia. We've read through them with our boys. But, but there's something not good in that mere Christianity mindset where it's just the bare essentials. All we talk about are the bare essentials because the Bible deals with more than just the bare essentials when it comes to matters of salvation. Yes, we need, they're clear. And, and I believe the doctrines that I might differ with somebody else on are, are pretty clear too. You, you, the, the scriptures are consistently teaching these things. But we can't just go to the you know, mere Christianity mindset where it's only the bare essentials because the Bible deals with so much more than just how do you get saved? How, how are we to structure the church? How are we to view baptism and the Lord's Supper? What are we to think of the, the miraculous gifts? All these things are important and they're taught. They're extremely important. We don't shy away as a church from them. And we have convictions and distinctives on these things. Our understanding of them will inform our view of the church and, and our view of the Christian life. 
But just because someone is a Presbyterian or a Lutheran or a Methodist, that, that doesn't mean that they're a false teacher. Now, it's certainly possible that they could be. They, they could be a false teacher. But despite our differences on some doctrines, if they believe and proclaim the very same gospel that we believe and proclaim, then they are not a false teacher. They're not a heretic. They're a brother or sister in Christ. Now, personally speaking, when it comes to theology, I believe that I, ha- I often have much more in common theologically with Bible-believing, conservative, theologically speaking, Presbyterians than I do with many Baptists and many non-denominational, or somebody that would say they're non-denominational. Uh, I, I give that point because, because while we should not diminish our doctrinal differences, at the same time, we should not diminish our unity in Christ with other Christians who believe and, and proclaim the same gospel. But here's the real tension In our country, if you disagree with somebody, and I'm not just talking in the church, I'm talking politically, I'm talking about a certain issue of practice in the government or whatever, uh, then then it's often perceived as hatred. If you don't agree with everything I say, then you hate me, you don't love me, there's no unity there. And that has made its way, that mindset, into the church as well. And so when we talk with somebody about a different view of baptism or the Lord's Supper or the, the, uh, the miraculous gifts or the order of salvation, uh, it, it often can turn to me against you rather than what do the scriptures say, what is faithfully being taught to us from God's word, and it turns to almost like some Christians will say things like they're not a Christian because we differ over this. Now there are things that if they, they differ with you on and you believe the gospel, then they're not a Christian. But we need to be willing to, to enter into those conversations. I read probably weekly, weekly people who disagree with me on baptism. I'm convinced that believers' baptism is what the scriptures teach, that it's, it's, it's the right and, and proper practice. But there are faithful Presbyterians, again, that have shaped and helped me in so many ways that, that would differ. And I don't have to say, you know what, you know, I, let's not talk about it. Brothers and sisters, we need to talk about these things so we have a better understanding so that, that God uses these conversations to sharpen us, to, to dig deeper into theology. We're, we're not to be afraid of doctrine. We can disagree about things like baptism and the Lord's Supper and still agree on the gospel and love our brothers and sisters where we differ on a certain doctrine. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, some Christians will never, ever call a false teacher what they are, a false teacher, a heretic. It's almost like a swear word for some Christians. Oh, he said false teacher. You know, heretic, the H word, like don't, don't ever use that word. A heretic is someone whose teaching contradicts what the Bible clearly has, has taught us and the church has faithfully held to throughout church history. And there's a, there's a, you know, a, a spectrum there within Orthodox Christianity, but a heretic is, is a denier of the truth. Now, this unwillingness might be because of a lack of understanding. Some Christians don't know doctrine. They don't understand, you know, the doctrine of sin or the doctrine of salva- salvation or the doctrine of the Trinity. So, so they're hesitant to open their mouths because they're like, I, it sounds wrong, but I can't really address it because I don't, know, I don't know how to. So that could be the case. But often it's a fear of man, of not wanting to, to be viewed as judgmental, which is another sin in our culture and in the church. Oh, I, I'm just, listen, when we're looking at Scripture and we're saying, uh, your drunkenness is sin, your sleeping around outside of marriage is sin. Your greed is sin. We're not being judgmental. We're being biblical. It's not our standards that we're judging people by. We're bringing the word and saying, that's, that's destructive. That does not honor the Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, sometimes we need to be judgmental because the Bible is true and it says this is sin. That's not acceptable. This is not what Christians should be doing. And so we need to push against that. 
Well, reading a commentary, I was reminded of a, a song by my favorite Christian rapper. Yes, I have a favorite Christian rapper. Uh, his name is Shai Lin. If you haven't heard of him before, I'd encourage you to, even if you're not into Christian rap, uh, this, is, this is really theology in rap. Uh, and, and it will bless you and encourage you, even if you listen to no other rap. Uh, I, I found rap, and I don't listen to Christian rap all the time. Uh, my boys love it, and they love to dance to it. Uh, but but I've found that you can put so much more in, in a Christian rap song than you can in, you know, in, a, in a regular song. And, and there's a place for it, and it's helpful. Well, he has a song, Shai Lin has a song called False Teachers. And in the song, Shai names names. He, gives, he lists false teachers. And he took a lot of heat for that from, from some people. And so he lists popular false teachers. And, and one of the lines that he gives uh, in the, the, one of the lines in the songs he gives this explanation as to why many won't call false teaching what it is. And I know that some will label me a Pharisee because today the only heresy is saying that there's heresy. That's the same judgmental mindset. It, it, to call a spade a spade is now a sin. To say that's not biblical is, is somehow become a, a mindset in the church. And, and both of these extremes are unacceptable. Friends, one of the greatest problems in the church today, especially in the American church, is the amount of false teaching that can be found within the church. Whether it's the prosperity gospel or universalism, which is basically everybody but Hitler gets into heaven by being a good person, doing some nice things, or the denial of the authority and sufficiency of Scripture, so many heresies are alive and well in many supposedly evangelical Protestant churches. Now, I, I'm convinced that, that the Christians in these churches will ultimately not be lost, but it stunts their growth. They're believers in some of these churches hearing this garbage and being confused. It also distorts the gospel, and so when people come into these churches who aren't Christians, they think, yeah, my best life now, or uh, the, uh, the, the idea that if, if, if you're a good person, you can get into heaven. All this stuff is, is, is being proclaimed as Christian it's representing Christ and, and the word. So it's, it's distorting the gospel. And it's leading many people astray. In Matthew 7.15, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. That, that, that's not a, you know, a conditional statement for just the time that, that was, was going on in Jesus' day. That, that applies to today. And it's not fun to call out false teachers. I don't get excited about naming names. It doesn't please me when I say Benny Hinn is a false teacher. Joel Olstein will, will lead you to, to the American dream. He won't lead you to, to the heavenly dream. That doesn't make me feel good. But it's true. And if we don't call out false teachers and false teaching, we leave the door open to the church for the spirit of the Antichrist to come in and we invite wolves into the church. Well, come in. Are you hungry, wolf? You want somebody and you want to take them away from God? Uh, take, take him over here. Come on in. You're welcome. We'll accept everybody and every teaching. Or, or, or her over here. You, you want her? She, she's a wonderful, godly woman. Yeah. She, she'll, she'll go with you. That's, that's what we end up doing. The church is God's flock, the bride of Christ. Biblical doctrine doesn't divide us. It protects God's people. And this is why we are a church that uses creeds. And sometimes we read uh, the Nicene or, or the Apostles' Creed together. We're not afraid of confessions as long as they line up with Scripture. As elders, we just finished the London Baptist Confession of 1689. And, and it was so profitable, so helpful. 
This is why we're learning the New City Catechism as a church, because yes, these aren't scripture, uh, but they're, they're summaries of scripture, and they're tools and resources so that all of us, our children, our, our young people, our older people, and our oldest people can, can have good, clear biblical theology and be able to understand what is true and what is not. Differing convictions on certain doctrines may lead one Christian to join a Presbyterian church and another to become a member of a Baptist church, but, but doctrine means truth. I love reminding you of that. So when somebody says, I don't want doctrine, I just want Bible. You get it? Doctrine is truth. I want Bible. It's the same. It, for me to come up here and not give you doctrine would, for me to come up, would be for me to come up here and give you lies. We need doctrine. Doctrine is truth. And of course, it's God's truth. Exposing false teachers and heresies closes the door of the church, keeping the wolves out and the sheep in. And so how can we determine who is telling the truth and who is lying? How can we avoid the two extremes of calling everyone a false teacher and no one a false teacher? Well, in verses 2 and 3, John tells the church to use the Jesus test. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. If someone gets who Jesus is or what Jesus did wrong, well, then they get the gospel wrong. The person of Jesus and the work of Jesus is at the very heart of the gospel. If you get Jesus wrong, you get the gospel wrong. Now, the specific heresy that John was addressing in this passage and in much of the letter is an ancient heresy that denies that Jesus Christ was truly human. It came to be called docetism, and this word docetism comes from a Greek word that means to seem. According to docetism, Jesus only seemed to be human, but he, but he wasn't truly human. These people believed that what people saw during Jesus' earthly ministry was, was essentially a ghost, and they deny that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh. They deny the incarnation as taught in the Bible, so they failed the Jesus test. Now, there's other tests in Scripture to determine and, and see who is a false teacher, but this is, this is the Jesus test, and it, and it has to do with who Jesus is and what people are teaching about Jesus. Many of the pagan religions that were very popular when John wrote the letter believe that the, the spiritual cannot be united to the physical, and therefore Christ being God was truly spiritual, and he could never become truly physical. He could never come in the flesh as a man. Uh, later, another heresy or false teaching that the church had to face uh, was called Gnosticism, and it developed from the same belief that, that the more spiritual you were, the less physical you were. And, and in the end, you would leave your body, and there would be no physical left. It would all be spiritual. And so when we worked through Colossians uh, a few series ago, uh, we, we saw early Gnosticism uh, there, where don't eat this, don't drink this. Don't have any joy in the things that God has made. Separate yourself from the world in an unbiblical sense. And so that, that same belief is, is at work in docetism. Now today, most people don't have a problem with Jesus Christ being truly man. What they have a problem with is Jesus, Jesus Christ being truly God. So things have kind of flipped and switched. But the Bible teaches us both that the eternal Son of God became a man at the incarnation, that he came in the flesh, that he was and he always has been ever since the incarnation, truly God and truly man. So right now, Jesus has a body, a glorified body in heaven. That's another thought to write. How does he have a body? He's in heaven. He's the only one with this glorified body right now. The rest of the saints that have gone before are waiting for the resurrection of the dead. That's, that's an amazing, difficult thought as well. 
though it's not as prevalent today as it used to be, this heresy is still alive today. It's found within New Age teachings, and every once in a while there's this cycle where New Age ideas and teachings make their way back into the Christian church, and so some of us have been, been exposed to some of these ideas. You know, you just, if you just get into a trance and you separate from your body, then you really have this, this experience with God. Uh, it's also found in the teachings of Mary Baker Eddy, who founded the group known as Christian Science in the 1870s. That group still exists. And a subtle form of it can be found in any teaching that de-emphasizes the true humanity of Christ. And some false teachers, especially in the Pentecostal vein, will, will do some of that sometimes. They'll say, no, he really wasn't human. That's why he could do what he did. No, no, he truly was human. A few years ago, while helping to lead a Bible study at a senior living facility, uh, we were discussing the death of Christ. And I think if I remember right, it was around uh, Good Friday and Easter. And so we were talking about uh, those events. And as we were talking about the death of Christ, a woman turned to me and said, I don't believe that Jesus actually died on the cross. And and I was puzzled. And I was like, what do you mean? And, and then she said, I believe that it only appeared that Jesus died, but that he didn't actually die because he didn't really have a human body. And, and of course, I was a bit surprised. I had heard about this heresy, but I hadn't really talked to somebody in person and in that type of setting. And so I said something like, hmm, that's interesting. Uh, but uh, but I, I know the Bible doesn't teach that. I, I'm convinced the Bible doesn't, doesn't agree with you on that. And she went on to say, well, and she said politely, she's probably 80, in her 80s, uh, well, that's what I was taught in, in my church, and, and there are many other people who agree with me. But that doesn't pass the Jesus test that John gives us in this passage. If Jesus did not come in the flesh, then we are still dead in our sins. The book of Hebrews makes this clear. In Hebrews 2.17, concerning Jesus, we read, <coughs> Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Every respect, he had to be just like us, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You see, in order for Jesus Christ to live a righteous life and perfectly obey God in our place as a human, he had to be human just like us. We needed his, his, what is called his passive obedience. We needed him to be perfectly obedient to God in his life so that he could die on the cross for our sins. And if he's not truly human, he's not obedient in our place. We also needed him to be truly human so that he could make propitiation. He could atone for our sins. He could bring us the favor of God. In order for for him to pay for human sins, he had to be truly human. And only in this can he serve, and and only in this being true can he serve as our perfect high priest, our our righteous mediator between God and man. In order for Jesus Christ to be raised from the dead, which ensures our justification and our own future bodily resurrection, well, Jesus had to have a real human body to be raised from the dead. And so despite how difficult it might be for someone to comprehend how God the Son could become a man while remaining God, it's what the Bible teaches. Theologians call it the hypostatic union, and, and if you want to learn more about the hypostatic union, a place to start with is with Shylin, who has a song called Hypostatic Union. Now, it's a technical term that describes how in the incarnation, God the Son's divine nature was united in the person of the Son with the human nature, and the two natures, divine and human, are united in the one person we know as Jesus Christ. It's a lot of big words, I think, and they're worth knowing and studying. 
Now, historic creeds like the Nicene and the Chalcedonian summarize the Bible's teaching of both the humanity and the divinity of Christ. A few months ago, in making our way through the, the New City Catechism as a church, we, we read question 22 together, and, and I'll read it again. Why must the Redeemer be truly human? That in human nature he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin, and also that he might sympathize with our weaknesses. If you have a child that, that memorizes for the song that they sang to the church, uh, they might have just been mouthing that song. I love the idea, the thought, the reality that, that our children are learning that. These big, glorious truths that they might not fully, I'm, I'm pretty sure most of them don't fully understand, and yet they have them. They're in their minds, and we're, we're praying as a church that, that these truths would make their way down into their heart. And, and that's why we're going through the catechism. These are glorious, important truths summarized, biblical truths. Scripture teaches us that God the Son really did become a man while remaining God in obedience to the Father. And he did this to atone for our sin, to reconcile us to God. Church, for his glory and for your joy, the Father sent his Son into the world as a human. And he came as a human to bear the wrath that you deserved. Think about the cross without the, the truly human body of Christ. He, he, didn't, he wouldn't have experienced the suffering that we read about in the scriptures. It would have all been just a mirage. Him acting, him pretending like he was suffering physically like the way that he did. But he did. He took the lashings, the mocking. He, he was spit on. He was broken, as we remember in the Lord's Supper. He hung on a cross naked before all these, these people. Physically. Because we deserved it, and yet he took it. You, you take away the humanity of Christ, you lose all that. He loves us in bearing the wrath that we deserved, atoning for our sins and reconciling us to God through his own body. One mark of those who teach the truth is that they affirm that Jesus has come in the flesh. They pass this Jesus test. And if a teacher denies the humanity of Christ, it doesn't matter how good they look, how smooth they talk, how many electric guitars they got going behind you, how many times they have you repeat the same line over and over again. It doesn't matter how good your feelings are after you listen to that teacher. If they deny the humanity of Christ, they don't pass the test. They're a false teacher. They preach a different Christ, a Christ that cannot save you. And having given us a test that exposes false teachers, in verses 4 through 6, John tells us what God has given to Christians so that we're able to withstand the deception of false teachers. Because, because I do believe that Christians can be temporarily deceived, confused for a while. They can be in a false teacher's church, and yet the Lord will keep them. And so we read in verse 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I love that the context of this passage that is often quoted, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, is with false teachers. You know, it gets used in a, you know, you're going through a struggle, you know, just a, a difficulty in life. And well, remember, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Yeah, it's true, but it's, it's, it's taken out of context. The context is false teachers. The spirit in you is greater than the false teaching out there in the world. A Christian is someone who is from God. They have repented and believed in Jesus. God has given us Christians the right to become children of God. Children who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To be a Christian is to be born again. A miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. And having been born again, adopted by God, God will not leave us. He doesn't say, all right, I've saved you and, and I'll see you when you get to heaven. We'll talk then. Uh, good luck. 
No, the Holy Spirit who regenerated us, who made us alive when we were spiritually dead, who convicted us of our sin, who led us to repentance, who changed our hearts of unbelief, as we read in the catechism question, who gives us the gift of faith. He is the one who gave us ears to hear the gospel and opened our eyes so that we could see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's a time where we didn't. He's not that great. Big deal, Jesus. And then there's a time, whether it was three or 30 or 60, yep, he's it. He's great. I love him. He's the Savior. Glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's the one who did it in this wonderful, sovereign, saving work. And Christian, he is in you. And he is far greater, infinitely stronger, and more powerful than the Spirit who is at work in the world, who is ultimately the source of and behind all false teaching. For the Holy Spirit is God, the third person of the Trinity. And having taken up residence in you, Christian, he's committed to sustaining you. He does not give up territory. You're purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He has made that known to you. He came to you, he changed your heart, and he's now in you, and he will not leave you. He will guide you, sustain you, and protect you. He will lead you away from false teachers and back into the arms of Jesus Christ. That is your first, your best defense against false teaching. You have the Holy Spirit, Christian. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. And we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. That's wonderful. It'd be like, oh, that's all I need right there. I need the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But John goes on. In verses five and six, he writes, they are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now here John contrasts the the false prophets with the true teachers by the two groups of people who, who listen to their teaching, who embrace their teaching. The world will listen to and ultimately embrace the false teacher's message because that's their message. They like it. They're in agreement with it. And whoever knows God, that is the true Christian, will listen to us. Now, the they in, in this passage clearly refers to false teachers. But, but who does the us refer to? Now, I don't believe the us is a reference to any believer today, whether it be John Piper, John MacArthur, or a past believer, John Calvin, or Charles Spurgeon. I, I don't believe it's a reference to any believer today or past uh, besides one group, at least not directly. As John Stott puts it, It would be the height of arrogance for an individual Christian to say, whoever knows God agrees with me. I mean, just imagine, if you know God, you'll agree with me on everything. That would be be crazy. That would be prideful. That would be me taking a position that that I have not been given. And to say that only those who are not from God disagree with me. Again, prideful. So how can John say that here? How can he say, if you are of God, you will agree with us? Because the us that he is referring to is the apostles. That's the unique group that he's referring to. They speak not on their own authority, but as Christ's chosen apostles. They were given a unique apostolic authority. God called them, he commissioned them, he sent them out, and they are the ones who gave us the very words of God. And and how can we Christians today listen to John and the apostles? How can we obey the same passage? By opening our Bibles and reading our Bibles, and believing what the Bible says. That's how we can listen to the us that John is referring to in this passage. For the apostles' message is recorded for us in the Bible. 
It's not just their words, but the very words of God given to us through, through human authors, but whose ultimate author is who? The Holy Spirit. So he used the apostles to, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, breathe out the word of God to us. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so the spirit who is in you, that he's in you, Christian, he's the one who enables you to listen to the us in this passage, the apostles and their message. And you hear it through the word of God, the Bible, which is breathed out by the very same Holy Spirit who is in you. And so scripture and the word of God work together. They, they're always together. The spirit will never lead you to do something that contradicts scripture. He's the one who gave us the scripture. He won't change his mind and, you, and say, you know what? You know, this whole um, marriage being between one man and one woman, you know, I, I know I said that through the apostles uh, and through the prophets back then, but that's changed. I've got a different idea about that. And so you can kind of set around, aside those passages and, and go with this passage. And the way that you can know that is because I'm telling you directly apart from the scriptures. Anytime there's a contradiction between the word of God and what you think the spirit's telling you, the problem is, is he's not telling you that. <laughs> Something else is going on. It could be a worldly idea. It could be your own flesh that wants to compromise. You know, it's still sin to have sex outside the context of marriage. Even if everybody's doing it, even if, even if supposed Christians are doing it, it's still sin that hasn't changed. The Holy Spirit made that clear in his word. There's a lot of false teaching in the world, a lot of false teaching in the church, a lot of man-centered, pragmatic, your best life now preaching a different Christ nonsense. It's garbage. And too often, Christians will judge a teaching by their feelings. They'll listen to a teaching and say, you know, that feels good. They said some really nice things. No harsh words, no warnings, no reminders. You know, he read the passage in the beginning and he didn't really quote another passage or he used seven different Bible translations to make that one point that made me feel really good. And they'll judge a, a teaching if it, if it makes them feel bad. They'll say, that's a bad teaching because it made me feel bad. Others will hear that a teacher who preaches strange doctrines can, can do so uh, be because of the basis of these supposed signs and miracles that validate their teaching. It's, you go online and you hear these teachers and they're, they're lengthening legs and then they're saying some crazy stuff about Jesus. Look, I'm telling the truth. I can, I can put these two legs the same length. It's like that's an old trick that magicians used to use like 300 years ago. People are still buying into that. Uh, they, they pray for healing. Uh, this, this healer prays for healing uh, and somebody's back feels better for a day. Healing. Uh, they just happened to take some Advil, too. And that, that, that was a natural means that God gave some relief. Uh, the, the, the supposed healing with their, their um, major issue um, got a little bit better. And then you compare that to Scripture and it doesn't line up. The apostles were given these signs and miracles, the, the ability to, to do these signs and miracles to validate their message, which is the Bible, the, the gospel, these truths that we hold. And now people are using supposed signs and miracles. And some of them, I'm sure, are the devil. You know, because we see that in Scripture too. False prophets being able to do certain things because they, they're demonic. And then people go astray. And some of these guys and these ladies are really good at what they do. They're really good at whipping up emotion, getting people excited. And because so many of us are geared towards emotionalism, people fall into it. 
They're really deceptive showmen and charlatans. At best, they'll take your money. That's the best case scenario if you fall into their teaching. They're going to take your money. Uh, there's a couple that, that used to attend this church, that, this is years ago, and I found out that they were also attending a ministry uh, in, in Chicago. And so I looked up the ministry, and this guy was a charlatan, false teacher, crazy doctrine, and, and yet he promised them that if, if, if they stuck with him, that they would be blessed. It was a version of the prosperity gospel, word of faith junk. And I met with them and talked with them, and they say, you don't talk about prosperity enough. You don't, you don't talk about money enough and how the Lord's going to bless us if we are faithful and we just do, do what he says, financially bless us. And I said, well, I don't believe that that's true. And so we walked through that and talked through that. And they said, well, this guy says it's true. And he's blessed. Look how much money he has. And I said, you know where he got that money? From getting it from you. Open your eyes. See, see what's going on. And they left the church. And last I, I heard that they're, they're with that charlatan. People, and they're, they're smart people. It's not about intelligence. It's what do you really treasure? Do you treasure the Christ of the Bible or the things of this world? And then others will, will judge a teacher and their teaching by worldly standards. If the teacher is really popular, if, if they have a best-selling book, you know there's a, a business behind best-selling Christian books? One pastor lost his, his pastoral ministry position in his church because it came to be known that, they, that the church funds were used to promote his, his own book that made it about the, the, the church in essence, without knowing, bought 300 to 400,000 copies. And that's what made it a best-selling book. There's a business behind the bestseller. So if, if it's a bestseller, that it could be a good book. There's some good, one, good ones. Uh, but, but it also is very likely that there's a business behind that and people are making a lot of money. People say, well, he has, he, he has a big church, so it must be good. They have lots of money, and, and, and celebrities are endorsing them. Athletes are going to their church, and it must be, must be a good teaching. Church feelings and supposed signs and fame are, are not reliable ways of judging a teacher or their teaching. Everyone who heard Jesus didn't feel really good after he was done preaching. Sometimes God's word shows us that we're sinning, that we're in sin, and, and, and we need to repent and, and obey the scriptures. It reveals to us that things in our life, in our character, in our heart, they, they need to change. And, and that's a really, really good thing. We need to learn to love that feeling. When the scripture says this, and we're out of step with it, and it's true, and something needs to change. Because God promises to give us grace and strength. He's, his spirit is in us, and as we seek to obey, it's going to be hard. Sanctification is a process. But, but there will be victory. And yet it doesn't always feel good when we, we have those feelings. When we compare the supposed signs and miracles being done by false teachers with what we see in Scripture, they don't match. And if non-Christians and worldly Christians like what a teacher is teaching, if they have a great brand, a big house, and hang out with celebrities, if Oprah endorses them, that's a good sign that they are not preaching the gospel because the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Friends, don't believe every spirit, John says. We must give teachers the Jesus test when it comes to who Jesus is and what he has done. Do they proclaim the Christ of the Bible or a different Christ that cannot save? The Holy Spirit in us and the word of God are how we discern what is true and what is false. Not our feelings, not signs and wonders, and, and, and not if so-and-so endorses this teacher. It's the word of God and the spirit working with the word of God in us. I share these things out of love. I want you to love and treasure the Christ of the Bible and not some false Christ that cannot save. Let's pray. 
Lord, we do pray for help, for wisdom, that we would not call those who are not false teachers, but in error or who we differ or disagree with, false teachers, if they're not false teachers, and we would open our mouths and say what is true when somebody is a false teacher, a heretic, that, that proclaims heresies. Lord, we need your wisdom. We need, we need understanding. We need to dig into your word more and more. We need, to, we, we need to use the tools that you have given us. You've given us your spirit. You've given us your word. You've given us the, the history of the church, the creeds, the confessions, the catechisms. You've given us wonderful gospel-rich biblical resources, systematic theologies, and, and books that explain and dig into these truths. Father, I don't pray that we would all be scholars, but that we would all be what we are, theologians who love your word and, and treasure the truth because we treasure Christ. I do pray for any believers in, in this room right now who have drifted towards or, or are starting to entertain false teaching. Father, protect us from the prosperity gospel, from universalism, from, from a Christianity without the Bible. Protect us from the, the harm that these doctrines lead to, the confusion and the distortion that they bring. And we pray these things so that your church would be healthier and stronger, so the gospel will be passed on to, to the previous generations and the next generations and held to. And we pray these things for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.